This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to a special edition of True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Everyone in the world of true crime has a story to tell about a case they worked or maybe they lived through. Some are high profile, some you have never heard of, but they are all fascinating. Today's case is about the dramatic story of a mutiny aboard the HMS Wagner, a British vessel that embarked on a secret mission during a war with Spain. It is a story of murder, cannibalism, survival, and the search for truth after a catastrophic event. Our guest today is David Grant, a staff writer for The New Yorker and best-selling author of The Lost City of Z and Killers of the Flower Moon, which has recently been adapted into a film directed by Martin Scorsese. David is joining us now to discuss his latest book, The Wager, a tale of shipwreck, mutiny and murder, which is also going to be made into a movie. This one we hear Leonardo DiCaprio will be starring in. David, welcome to the program. It's great to be on the show. Thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. You are elevating the the value of real estate on this program, a literary giant, you know, and here we are, a little true crime podcast. But we're so excited to have you well, and that you're pleasure. being such I'm a good sport. A, I'm a true crime aficionado. So this is this is perfect. I'm happy to be here. Oh, you know, the, the thing about writing something like this, I listened to a series of interviews that you did um, talking about your process and 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 you know, trying to cover a crime from centuries ago is not an easy thing. Um, and I see behind you there, for those of you who are yes. listening, he has stacks and stacks of books and files behind him. Um, how did you find the nugget to begin investigating what was a crime so long ago? Yeah, so um, I was doing research on mutinies. It's a subject kind of always interests me because it's a very distinct form of rebellion. Uh, it takes place within an apparatus of the state, an instrument of the state, a military organization that's very purpose is order. So what causes members of it to suddenly rebel? Are they these extreme outlaws or criminals? Um, or 
Could there be something rotten in the system that sometimes justifies that rebellion? And so I was doing research on mutinies and I came upon, <laughs> I don't know how I did, but I came upon an account, an 18th century account by a midshipman on his majesty's ship, the wager. His name was John Byron. He was only 16 years old when the voyage set sail. If the name is familiar at all, it's because he would later go on to become the grandfather of the poet, Lord Byron, famous poet, who drew yeah. on this account. And I'm reading this old account in this kind of tangled old English and it's the F the S's are printed as F's, you know, this archaic English. And yet I keep pausing over these unbelievably arresting descriptions of this typhoon and shipwreck. And then when they become stranded on this island, they slowly descend into a real life Lord of the Flies with these warring factions and murder and ultimately mutiny. And so that was the first thing that kind of got its hooks into me. I did not plan or expect to be writing about a crime that took place in the 18th century, uh, but this one was so extraordinary. It was one of the more extraordinary sagas I ever heard of. And it has and raises a lot of questions about the systems of truth, systems of justice, how we punish crimes. Um, and so it really, uh, you know, it began what would become a five-year journey researching this old crime. So, David, this is not the kind of story or the kind of research that you do on Google. So I, I, my guess is you had to get to the original documents. Where did you find the original documents and what were their condition in order to to do the research? Yeah. So the, the first question I had after I read that, I kind of was like, well, I mean, even though it was fascinating to me, I was like, how are you ever going to tell the story? You know, I try to tell these stories that are character based, that are all rooted in fact, but hopefully have a novelistic quality. And I said, well, I could never do that unless I have underlying materials. But incredibly, there are in British archives documents from this expedition uh, in the National British Archives where naval records would go because the wager was a, a naval warship was part of this squadron that in 1739 in a war with its rival Spain had set off uh, on a secret mission to try to capture this Spanish galleon filled with so much treasure. It was known as the prize of all the ocean. So the very mission, even though it was military, had a kind of paratic criminal quality to it because yes. they were trying to basically steal plunder. Um and you go to these archives and you can get, they come out in a box. The documents, you know, were from these ships. Uh, they are water stained. The ink is fading. You have to lay them on pillows because the binders are dis uh, disintegrating. You kind of get submerged in this cloud of dust, but you can read them often with a magnifying glass, but you can read them. And like, for example, there are logbooks from these ships that give a day-by-day -day accounting of what had happened. There were journals kept from members of the expedition, including even on the island. They had salvaged some paper and quills and ink, the writing of quills. Um, and so you can really meticulously reconstruct and understand what happened. So I'm just curious as, as, you know, as a journalist, but and at researching when you're looking for that needle in the haystack and how exciting it is when when you find it, especially if it's a document driven investigation. So as you're describing how you have to put this on pillows, are you able to photograph um, any of these documents or must you write your notes from it? Uh, I know it's a different medium that you work in, but I'm just curious about how you document what it is you're seeing so you can build your research to tell your story. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, in this case, I had someone help me uh, make digital images 
of the pages that were in the archives because they required so much time of study to be able to really be able to read them and transcribe them. Um, you know, sometimes it would take me months and months to read one logbook and really document it precisely. So yes, you can make digital images. You, you got to be really careful handling that way you can make these digital images. And so ultimately what I did is I kind of turned my office, as you can kind of see, for those who can see me, my office looks a bit like a shipwreck, but it is about <laughs> five years of accumulation of archival material. Oh, that's fascinating that they permit you to do that because you have to wonder how do you, you know, you can absorb a lot, you can have moments, but, you know, even like there's a, a some documents that were recently released in a murder case I've been following. I need to be able to have a copy of it to highlight, to pick up, to move, or I can't tell the narrative of what these documents are telling us. A hundred percent. You really do. And sometimes, for example, you're looking for little edits. So, for example, sometimes in logbooks, you know, do they want to when when people wanted to kind of justify maybe something that had happened in their actions, they may go back on a logbook and add to it on the side, um, not when they had originally recorded. It, so it's not as contemporaneous so that if it's ever shown before the Admiralty, it may justify their actions. So even that you're looking for additions in the margins um, as you decode these. And of course, they would also use certain symbolism you would need to learn to decode. Um, and often the text was small. So being able to put them on a computer where you could just blow them up uh, to really study them. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, you're studying, um, you know, it's like kind of like uh, scrolls, biblical scrolls you're trying to, you're trying to read. And then was, was almost everything you needed contained within these series of boxes because, and we do need to tell what the case was and, and what the crimes were, but did you then find um, archival or documents anywhere else, like in, in because there was a um, a court trial. Yes, you, yes. I mean, they were scattered in different British archives. Uh, primarily, there was actually uh, some records um, at a historical society in Oregon, but most of them were in various uh, scattered in British archives. There were some uh, letters that were held from descendants who sent me. Um, there were court martial records, and one of the things to understand, and we will get into, but I think it's very relevant to. The way crimes uh, we think of crimes today is um, after several of the survivors will make it back to England, they are summoned to face a court martial. The court martial records exist for what they tell us. Um, but many of the people, the survivors, um, are terrified that after everything they've been through, they may be hanged for their crimes. And so they begin to share their testimony to get their story out um, in various ways. Some will publish their journals, share their logbooks, um, and they are all trying to shape the story. So this becomes both a criminal trial, but also a public trial in which there is a war over the truth, many very similar to the wars over our truth today that you often have with adjudicating trials and other public events. Um, and each of them is trying to shape the story to emerge as the hero of the story, uh, to live with the things they've done or haven't done, um, and to be able to create an account that can survive the attrition of public scrutiny and a military tribunal. Wow, it's fascinating. Like the spin we get here where people hire people right? No different. It is absolutely no different. In fact, what was so crazy is I was going to these archives 
And I would be reading about this war of the truth where they would be talking about disinformation and misinformation. They even talked about quote unquote fake journals. And then of course I was coming home and I was reading the newspaper about quote unquote fake news, alternative facts. And so you could just see these, you know, to me, this 18th century story in many ways felt like a parable uh, for our own turbulent times and for the very nature of truth. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. So David, just tell us in essence, what, the journey was, what they were setting out to do, and then where the crimes were committed. And then that will bring us all the way back to England. Yes. Yes. So um, in 1739, after war broke out between uh, uh, Great Britain and its rival Spain, the wager, which was uh, part of a squadron of warships, was set on this secret mission to capture this Spanish galleon known as the prize of all the ocean. They had to cross the Atlantic and then come around Cape Horn, which is at the very bottom of South America. The seas there are just notorious. You can have 90 foot waves, uh, you know, dwarfing a mast, the strongest currents on earth. The winds were accelerating to hurricane force. The ships are just being bandied about, um, uh, uh, Herman Melville, who later rounded the horn, compared it to a descent into hell in Dante's Inferno. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so the ships are breaking apart. They also uh, suffer from one of the worst outbreaks of scurvy ever recorded. Uh, the disease, their hair is falling out, their teeth are falling out, um, and the disease is getting into their brain, as one put it. And many of them went raving mad. So hundreds and hundreds of the squadron, there were nearly 2,000 people uh, in the squadron, about 250 men and boys on the wager have perished even coming around Cape Horn. And the ships are desperate to stay together because if they know if anything happens to them, if they're separated, um, there'll be no one to rescue them. Right. But, but they do get separated around Cape Horn. And the wager finds itself all alone and left to its own destiny. And it ultimately, as it's coming up the coast of Chile, it hits a submerged rock and the rudder shatters okay. and a two-ton anchor falls through the bottom of the ship. Then it hits another cluster of rocks And it begins to rip apart and the planks are shattering and the decks are caving in. You have water surging upward. You have rats scurrying upward. Uh, Many of those who've been suffering from scurvy drown because they couldn't get out of their hammocks in time. But the ship didn't completely sink. It was in this um, and it got wedged between two rocks. And so these pillars of rocks. And so the survivors are about 146 of them. They climb upon the remnants and there in the distance, they see this desolate island, which is now known as Wager Island. And they get there and they hope that maybe this will be their salvation. And they begin to try to build a uh, imperial kind of settlement with little huts and whatnot. The captain is a man named David Sheep, a new captain. He thinks they should be governed. And this is where we start to get into rules (laughs) and regulations. He wants to construct the same kind of civilization. (laughs) Yeah, he wants the exact same civilization that had kind of existed on the floating ship. So it'll be same hierarchy, same rules. Same order, same punishment. But on that island, there was virtually no food. Uh, one David, I have a question. Store. Was it inhabited? Were there any no. indigenous people? They will be visited by some indigenous people at one point. Uh, the Karasquar, who are known as the nomads of the sea, um, mm-hmm. who offer them a lifeline because they go out and get them food. Um, but the castaways, some of the castaways mistreat the Karasquar, who eventually are just like, we're out of here. And wow. at that point, the castaways only descend further into this Hobbesian state of depravity. And on that island where the crimes take place, the island will become like a laboratory. 
And to me, this is what drew me to this very kind of unusual crime, because this is less, I mean, there is one person who's kind of a psycho roaming around the island, <laughs> killing and, and pillaging. But most of the people are like us. They are fallible humans, capable of good and bad. And under these very extraordinary circumstances, these extreme circumstances, they are suddenly tested. And it begins to reveal their hidden nature, both the good and the bad. Um, and they begin to splinter into these warring factions. You have one faction, which is kind of marauding the island. One of the members of them is this kind of killer. Um, uh, and the others are terrified them. And then in the main encampment, you have the captain and his loyal followers trying to live the same way they had lived on the ship. He believes he should still be their captain because he'd been captain of the ship. Uh, but there is a gunner named John Bulkley. And this you get into class a little bit, too, because uh, on, a, on a naval warship, he didn't come from the upper class. So in those time periods, he knew he could never become a commander of his own warship. Yet on this island, he was an instinctive leader. People begin to gravitate toward him. He uses phrases like life and liberty. And oh, boy. <laughs> yes. And there are these two then very competing factions for how to survive. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. I'm Glennon Doyle, author of Untamed and host of the podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. On We Can Do Hard Things, my wife, Abby, my sister, Amanda, and I talk honestly about the hard parts of life. Join us and guests like Michelle Obama, Tracy Ellis Ross, and Brene Brown as we have refreshingly honest conversations. New episodes are out every Tuesday and Thursday. So listen to and follow We Can Do Hard Things, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and everywhere you get your podcasts. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. 
How, how long get- is this going on for, David? Give us a time frame of from the time they shipwreck, um, you know, h- how long are they living on this deserted island? Uh, some of them for about five months and some of them uh, for close to a year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so they are now, is anyone actually <laughs> taking notes, um, documenting what's happening on the island at this time? Or is that then written later on in a journal when they finally, you'll explain to us how they get off this island? Yeah. So um, interestingly enough, um, many of them will write their accounts after they get off. Um, uh, but John Bulkley, even though he didn't come from the upper class, we don't know, he probably came from the middle class, uh, was extraordinarily literate. He was a compulsive diarist. So he is taking uh, meticulous notes every day using, um, you know, some paper salvage uh, and uh, and a pen. And, and often he and many of the other men, especially as they start to approach this taboo of mutiny, which under British naval rules, a full-blown mutiny is one of the worst crimes uh, to overthrow your commander, uh, to harm your commander, um, uh, you know, can get you hanged. Um, and uh, so he is very conscious of this idea. I have to create contemporaneous documents to justify our actions in case we ever get back to England. We should also describe one of the other central crimes that takes place on the island. Um one of the crimes takes place when the captain, David Sheep, who, again, he was somebody who was always back in, he's Scottish, he was kind of embittered on land, faced deaths, even though he came from the upper cross. He'd always found refuge on a ship. And on this voyage, he had finally been promoted to captain. This was his lifelong dream. He had gotten his captainship. And then, of course, it crumbles with the wreckage. And he was well, he de- messed that up, didn't he? <laughs> yes, he did. And he was determined to kind of prove his mettle. So he's determined to cling to it. And as his authority is diminishing, he's growing increasingly tempestuous. He was a tempestuous character. But he's also very insecure about his authority, kind of maintaining this throne, of not losing his throne. And at one point, he begins to suspect mutiny. And he bursts out of the little hut he was staying in. Um, and there was one person in particular he was suspicious of. Um, and he walks up to him, believing he's mutiny. It will turn out he didn't actually have a weapon on him, the other person. The captain takes his pistol. He puts it right up to the man's head. And without asking questions, he shoots him in the head. Mm. And rather than increase his authority, the captain, this only further unsettles it um, and creates a growing uprising. Uh, against him. Now, interestingly enough, when we talk about accounts and how people describe their actions or their alleged actions, um, they don't actually tend to deny the basic facts. Captain Cheat doesn't deny that this happened, but in his account, he simply says, I was forced to proceed to extremities. Right. I was forced to proceed to extremities. Now, Captain Chief is not, you know, as, as some listeners, he's not a psychopath, he's not evil. But under these extreme circumstances, his character is being bent. He's facing unbelievable challenges. And he commits this alleged crime uh, in the eyes of others. He believes his actions are justified. Others see it as homicide. And so ultimately, when when this crime is committed, when a person is killed, because it happens, and I don't know if it's like a jurisdictional thing, meaning because they're shipwrecked and the captain is insisting on keeping order, does that mean that that killing, whether it's a homicide or not, 
who will be the judge of that? Where will this be um, decided? What kind of a court? Is this a, a military court or is this like, yeah. how do you deal with this? Yeah, yeah. It raises a really interesting question because um, it really would have fallen under the jurisdiction of the Admiralty. But some of the seamen who are beginning to question the captain's authority um, and and don't want him to be their captain anymore, they see a little loophole they believe in the rules and regulations, which is because the ship was sunk, then he is no longer necessarily the rightful captain. And actually, it is after this event that the Admiralty will rewrite its its regulations to make it clear so that there's no wiggle room. The Admiralty had assumed it would have fallen under their jurisdiction. And it's interesting to say, just as we described a full-blown mutiny as a severe crime, uh, probably the most severe crime under Admiralty rules, the one that there was leeway in punishment under the strict rules. Um, and a lot of times the Admiralty could you know, come up with punishments that were less severe as sometimes we think in our stereotypes of, of British rule and law under the Amity back then. But homicide was the one case, if you were convicted of, you were put to death. Oh, okay. And was he ever charged? So, well, ultimately, and then this gets to the other crime or alleged crime, because <laughs> that's what's so interesting about this case. And I really try to leave it up to the reader to be the jury. Um, to mm-hmm. serve and provide history, because they're all telling slightly different stories and you have to interpret them. But ultimately, um, Bulkley and his followers will mutiny or um, and they will tie up the captain, mm-hmm. claiming it is because of the homicide, the alleged homicide. The captain believes that they're using that just as a justification to undermine his authority and to essentially mutiny and and flee their responsibilities and duty. Um, And so they end up tying him up and they end up abandoning him and leaving him on the island. They had built the castaway boat, which they then flee in. They have to travel some 3,000 miles. It's one of the more extraordinary feats of navigation. Now, what did this boat look like? Oh, my gosh. So uh, they took what was like a, a small transport rope, you know, a bigger, you know, that could be rowed. It had a little ability to be sailed, but they were packed so tightly they could barely stand in it. I mean, they couldn't stand. They, they were just packed like they had virtually no provisions and they're going to travel uh, and you got to remember, they're starving. I mean, many of them had already starved to death. Some had succumbed to cannibalism already. How, how many of them are there? So, um, it, it, you know, uh, there are, by that time, there are under 100, um, but in the, it, of all the different factions. And in the one main group that leaves in this one castaway boat, and they have another little kind of small transport boat, uh, there's about 80 of them that leave, and only about 30 of them will survive. And and they travel all the way, they travel all the way down the coastline of Chile, and then they have to go through the Strait of Magellan, and then all the way up to Brazil. It's one of the longest castaway voyages ever recorded. It's a remarkable feat of navigation. And even along the way, there are questions of did they commit crimes or not? And again, these are complex crimes because they are under extreme circumstances, and. It depends on how we want to adjudicate and judge them. But there are abandonments along all the factions who try to flee end up having to abandon some people essentially to die under certain circumstances. A small transport boat might sink and there's not room for them. This is like Survivor. <laughs> it's like Survivor. And so they have so to people decide. people really die. Yeah, they have to decide who will be left behind. 
Um, and are they justified in leaving them behind? And it raises the question that, you know, Bulkley, who's a very religious man, is it a sin to want to live? So two things bef- before we, we get them back. So you mentioned cannibalism. Yes, so, that's a taboo. Um, yes, it is. But it's not unheard of even in this current century. You know, if something happens yes. and you have no choice, I mean, it is yes. something. Custom so, of the sea, it was sometimes described as. Okay, so what is the the proof or the documentation or the storytelling of the cannibalism? Yeah. So it's interesting. Most of them in their accounts do not like to describe it because it's it's a taboo, even if it's not necessarily a crime, if they're not um, killing someone. So if somebody mm-hmm. were to die of natural causes of starvation or disease, as many of them did, if they were to eat the remains... Um, uh, but John Byron, his account does describe it. He describes him trying to restrain a young boy who was trying to eat a liver. And he does, um, then say others, some did eventually succumb to what he referred to as that last extremity. He doesn't like to use the word cannibalism. And then they both groups of the two kind of main factions who kind of flee in different directions, Captain Sheep and his group, Bulkley and his larger group, um, uh, dis- discuss or it, the question arises, will they draw straws at some point because they're in such dire states? And that would mean actually killing someone um, if you were drawn the shortest straw or stick or what might it be. And if you lost that, then you would be put to death to be eaten. Um, there is no evidence that they ultimately went through that, at least according to their accounts. They said, you know, each time they approached that moment, something happened that bought them a little bit more time or they got some more food that would allow them to live. But that was something that was um, discussed. Okay, so they make it to Brazil. My question is, if they're, you know, off the coast of Chile, why couldn't they just stop there? Yeah. So they are in Great Britain is at war with Spain. And one of the fights between Captain Cheap and the two groups is a it's a fight over where to go. But it's also a kind of a fight over philosophy um, and codes. Captain Cheap believes they should take this castaway boat they built and they should sail north, which would remain within Chile to an island where there'd be, uh, you know, where the Spanish settlements were. They're in a kind of very remote area. Oh, um, they'd be killed, right? Yeah. The Spanish well, would kill them. They were afraid that the they would either get pulverized in a battle or they would be taken prisoner after everything went through. Cheap comes up with a scheme. They do have some muskets that they could seize some kind of trading vessel and then reunite at the rendezvous point where they had been given if they were ever separated with the rest of the expeditions. So he's determined to kind of fulfill his duty and to sacrifice himself for the empire. Honor, duty, loyalty, patriotism. Those are what he invokes. Bulkley says, and his followers, life and liberty. <laughs> we go there, we're going to get imprisoned. This expedition right. has been a folly. It's been an <laughs> imperial folly. We have suffered enough. We want to go home. So even though our voyage is in some ways more perilous, it was more perilous. It was 3,000 miles. We're going to get all the way to Brazil because that's a Portuguese colony. 
Britain was in a war in Brazil, so they would then be safe. They wouldn't get imprisoned or they would have to fight a battle. So that's why they picked that route. Yeah, so. so they would not have had at this point any kind of map or anything with them. They just would instinct instinctively know because of their training where yeah, Brazil so, is. Yeah. So they had, um, you know, on the ship, they had some kind of very rough charts, but, you know, of that area, they were pretty still unfamiliar with. Uh, they had some uh, from some of the indigenous people. They had some sense of where the closest Spanish settlement was to the north. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, when the ship sank, one of the things these ships did, because they didn't have good maps, especially at these heroes, they would bring what were like chronicles from seamen who had ever been in these parts. And oh. they had a chronicle that they had saved from another British uh, naval officer who had gone through the Strait of Magellan. Uh, several decades earlier. And so Bulkley, in a really remarkable feat of navigation, doesn't have a good map, but he has this account. And so he is reading the account and the descriptions and then trying to eyeball what he sees to match them up with the descriptions in the account. I can see this now with Leonardo DiCaprio. (laughs) I can see Martin Scorsese recreating this moment. (laughs) So, you know, know, Bulkley has a a kind of remarkable level of resilience and ingenuity because, you know, yes, they did not have good maps, but he does manage to get, you know, at least 30 of them. you know, when they arrive in Brazil, they're wasted to the bone, but they, they do get there. So they make it to Brazil. OK, so now at this point and the captain, they left him tied up. So I presume he's dead. Yeah, well, you think he's dead. And so and it also gets to another question about crimes. Right. When we, you know, kind of theme of this podcast. But. If there's nobody tell the other side of the version of the story, are you safe? Does that insulate you? If there's only one story that will emerge, are you safe? So we I think so. <laughs> yeah. So right. So when Bulkley's boat, little boat, washes ashore off the coast of Brazil, they are initially greeted as heroes. They've survived this wreck. They've done this incredible voyage, three thousand miles. It's kind of unbelievable, right? But many months later, another little boat will wash ashore. This one <laughs> off the coast of Chile. Uh, uh, And on board this, it's just a dugout. They were helped by some indigenous people who rescued them. It's Captain Cheap and John Byron. Captain Cheap at that point was so delirious, he could not even recollect his own name. Oh, so Uh, he survived. He survived. They are prepared to die. They have accepted their death. They have discussed the prospect of pulling straws, but they are prepared to die. And then ultimately they get help from some of the indigenous Patagonians, the native Patagonians. And so they, so a few of them make it, they are imprisoned uh, in, in Chile. And so it takes them many more years to eventually get back to England, but they do. Uh, six years, it will take six years since cheap. You had asked this earlier, since cheap and Byron had left England to ultimately make it back to England. Byron had been 16 years old when he left. He's 22. When he returns, his family cannot recognize him. And they come back. And of course, they tell a very, very different story that those people had gone to Brazil, they say, were not heroes. They were mutineers. And that's what sets off this ferocious battle over the truth and a military tribunal. Bulkley charges cheap with homicide. Cheap is charging them with a full-blown mutiny and abandoning him to die, so attempted homicide. 
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. And so, but because of the difference in time when the captain uh, made it to Chile, does everyone... so? The two factions do not arrive in England at the same time, correct? They do not. There is a period of delay where the British Admiralty is very suspicious. Rumors have gotten out. Somebody and some some people have made it out and begun to talk. Um, and so initially, actually, there is a period when Bulkley is detained and some of his followers are detained, but they decide to wait until they know the fate of Captain Chief. Nobody knows if he's alive or dead yet. And so they're kind of trapped in England waiting uh, and then lo and behold, they probably think they're scot-free suddenly, like in some strange Victorian novel where somebody presumed dead suddenly emerges, cheap <laughs> and, and his few loyal followers suddenly emerge uh, and rise from the dead like like Lazarus. Uh, oh. And so that's what happens. And that's what sets off this battle. So then there is a trial. Yes. This was there were just one trial or two trials. Good question. There is, they are initially summoned uh, to this military tribunal, um, and they think they're all going to be tried together for these crimes. Uh, Bulkley describes in his journal, which he has kind of continued and kept going, um, that um, he is going to be hanged. They've been given every indication. Uh, uh, Cheap has referred to them as my mutineers and said he will have nothing more to say until the trial, um, and that when they will be hanged, is what that's basically is one public comment. Um, and, you know, so Bulkley is praying before they go into this tribunal, uh, expecting to be hanged. We don't know exactly what Sheep feared. Uh, so um, this trial is believed to be this kind of momentous moment. We are going to have this kind of adjudication of this. And one thing to understand about the British Navy, because this is a different kind of tribunal, right? We're not talking about 
uh, a civil a, a civil trial. We're talking about a, a military, a court martial, which has its own kind of rules. A, a British court martial punishment was very important because um, if there were severe crimes, they were um, punished as a way not only to punish the guilty, but also to send a signal to the rest of the organization for discipline to be kind of mm-hmm. served as an example. So that was kind of part of its, it had a slightly different, uh, a key part of its uh, raison d'etre, these, these, these military tribunals. So they go into this tribunal expecting uh, these fireworks and lo and behold, they're not asked about any of the alleged crimes on the island. They're not asked about the alleged mutiny. They're not asked about the tying up of Captain Sheep. They're not asked about the cannibalism. They're not asked about Captain Sheep shooting this other seaman in the head without any proceedings. Instead, they only ask them about what it cost the wreck of the ship before they had gotten to the island. Oh, that's interesting. It is the equivalent, I would say, of stopping a car with a driver that has a dead body in the trunk <laughs> and asking the driver only why ab- about the busted tail light. Right. And why he ran the light. <laughs> right. Or why they ran the light. So, so why is that? Why is that? Well, mutinies can sometimes be so threatening to a state that they don't even want to talk about them. And these crimes um, undercut the central claim of the British Empire, which was that its civilization was somehow superior to others. And so they're looking and trying to hear all these stories. Here you have everybody waging their war over their story to look the best. And they're kind of saying, you know, as best we can tell, do we like any of these stories? You know, they make our officers who are supposed to be the vanguard of the British Empire and their crew, these supposed apostles of Western civilization, they look more like brutes than like gentlemen. And so they're all let go. They close the court martial to your earlier question. There are no other court martials. They are all let go as if nothing happened. And it became, um, as uh, one British historian put it, it became the mutiny that never was. Ah. Now, does that ending work for Hollywood? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. It, it, it goes against expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it reveals actually something very deep and profound about uh, how certain nations will want to prosecute crimes. I mean, I just was picking up uh, the newspaper yesterday and reading about the mutiny in Russia. And there was a headline that was an outright mutiny. They've got tanks coming into Moscow, coming from Ukraine, right? And um, suddenly all the... um, the Russian government was kind of, ah, was it really a beauty, the beauty that, and, and, and the headline was essentially that, you know, Russia tries to rewrite the story of the mutiny. So mutiny is a very particular crime. It could be so threatening to the state in its position that sometimes uh, it prefers to not adjudicate it. Uh, and it become they become, or they try to become the mutinies that never were. So interesting. So interesting, you know, because yes, it's always the protection of whether it's 
the military, the country, the perception, no matter what century you're in, you're still protecting the same interests. This is exactly, this cuts the very nature of systems and, uh, and, and how justice can be corrupted, how the powerful in certain systems can, can corrupt systems or undermine them um, uh, to serve their own interests. And so uh, this is a court martial, which was ser- clearly trying to serve the self-interests of those in power because the war had been disastrous up until that point. Um, something else happened that um, there was one uh, of the ships from the squadron mm. that actually survives, led by this Commodore, gets around Cape Horn. They're down to one ship eventually, about 200 battermen, and they capture the galleon. They capture the galleon with all the treasure. They got it. They got Mission it. accomplished. Mission accomplished. So they come back to England, and, and that's the story they want to tell. Right. That's the story of the war, because crimes during wartime again, have put different pressures on the state and regimes. And so they have found their mythic tale of the sea, and they would prefer prefer that the wager mutiny and the crimes that took place on the island fade away and that we forget them. So this Commodore manages to, has mission accomplished. He arrives, he's the real hero. He's like, and what happened to you guys? Like, what was your problem? Okay. And he was, a, he really was a remarkable leader that he was able to do this. He was very skilled, very talented, had a lot of Shackletonian qualities. But I think, you know, that these are very distinctive crimes or alleged crimes because, again, the people involved are deeply human. And when you read about them, you have to ask yourself, what would I have done in their circumstances? Who would I have been on that island? It's very easy to judge from afar. Yeah. What? Who would I have been under those circumstances? Who would I have followed? How would I have behaved? What was my hidden nature? So it gets to the very nature of who we are as human beings, what kind of prompts us to do good, because you will see acts of gallantry and heroism among the men, but you also see these shocking acts of brutality. And I think it's also, even though it's a very unusual case uh, of crime, it deals with a mutiny or an alleged mutiny, it gets to the very systems of justice and power um, and how judges, how how justice uh, can be perverted to serve uh, systems of power. I think the the really complicated part of crime reporting and looking at crimes really comes down to this question of, and I, I it took me a while to get to this, good people do bad things and bad people can do good things. And that is the complexity of a human being. Yes. And um, that's the part that people find so challenging when we see uh, an adult, a young adult accused or convicted of a heinous murder. We stand there and we're like, how can um, his or her parents stand by them? Because they gave birth to this little one. I, it, you know, it's the husband, the wife. It, it, it's so complicated. And it's, I don't think there's an answer to that one. Yeah. And I think especially people are put in these circumstances, these people that, that these people are under. Um, and, you know, one of the other things that I think is really interesting, because we all like to kind of follow 
crime stories, and we like to uh, look at the competing narratives that the prosecution and the defense are battling, which story kind of will prevail, which will uh, you know lead to a denouement of trial. And so one of the things I tried to do in this book and get to its structure was to structure the story in such a way that gets at this. And so it's really told from three competing perspectives, the perspective of David Cheek, the captain, and his account, the perspective of John Byron, the young midshipman, and the perspective of John Bulkley. And you get to see how each of them is shaping the narrative. Um, they don't tend to lie, but they tend to tell stories the way we all tell stories, which is they kind of burnish certain facts. They edit out certain ones. They leave them out. Captain Cheek may say on the island, I was forced to proceed to extremities. Then you read John Byron's account. He shot him right in the head. <laughs> and you get to see in that juxtaposition. Uh, and it shows something about their character. So um, I leave it up to the reader to kind of be part of this, to, to kind of help judge and adjudicate this, to provide history's judgment, but also hopefully to become more discerning about the nature of truth and about the way we shape stories to get closer to the truth. That's fascinating. Um, David, we have a few minutes left. There was something that you were talking about on um, one of the podcasts you did, and uh, I was fascinated by it. It was the origin of some words <laughs> that we use all the time that you discovered had origins in this time period. And, and would you share that? Because I just found that so uh, yeah. fun. I loved it. I mean, you know, it's so funny because I am a generalist. So I kind of move around and I don't know things about subjects before I begin. What did I know about 18th century uh, naval life? And so, you know, I spent years researching and, you know, I was so stunned that so many of the words and phrases that we use that I use derive from this age of sail. So one of the words, for example, is scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt was a barrel on a ship where water uh, it was a water, water barrel, and it was where the seamen would get their water rations. And so they would gather around the barrel. What would they do around the barrel? They'd gossip. So we have the word scuttlebutt. Uh, piping hot, that was the bosun's whistle for a hot meal, uh, meal time. Uh, pipe down was the bosun's whistle to be quiet at night or before battle. Um, pipe down just doesn't make sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, one of those yeah. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, pipe down was like, because they would be blown a little whistle. And that's what we think of it, pipe down. Wow. Um, and then um, under the weather. I always thought under the weather was this perfect metaphor for sickness. It yes. Turns, it turns out it was quite literal on a ship that when you were uh, on a warship and you were sick, you did not serve on watch. You did not serve on deck. You were kept below deck. So you were quite literally under the weather. Uh, and then and then perhaps my uh, uh, favorite, which came a little bit later in the century, uh, 18th century, uh, is to turn a blind eye. And that derived from when uh, Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson, the you know, very famous uh, naval officer, um, wanted to ignore his superior officer's signal flag in the distance on another ship <laughs> to retreat. And he had a blind eye. So he took his telescope and he put it up to his blind eye. And so that's why we say today to turn a blind eye. Oh, I love that. That's fascinating. That those you are such gems. Oh, they're gems, and there's so many of them. I mean, it's on. I could go on and on. You could do a book on them. Oh, I love that. Well, you perhaps you will, or an article. <laughs> <laughs> One never knows. Uh, before we go, I do want to ask you about the the challenges of when you write something and it's made into a movie. I know you've got one. I think it's going to be released soon. What is the challenge in that storytelling? Because the beauty of a book 
you know, whether you read it or, and I love to listen to books as well. Yes. It's, it's to me, it's like that. It's just, it's like a treat. It's like being read to, yeah. um, I can, in my imagination, go there. And I, and, and every single person who's ever like loved and cherished a book and then go sees the, the movie always says, Oh my God, you know, it just didn't do it justice. The book was so much better. Every single one of us has said that. So you who write the book, how, how do you reconcile all of this? What's that yeah, like? You know, so I'm not a movie person. I mean, I love movies like most people, but I, I, you know, I've never tried to write a script and I wouldn't have the faintest idea how to make a movie. Um, and so, you know, my goal or object, uh, knowing I have limited control, you really don't have much control when you're an author, um, is to get it into the hands of people who do know what they're doing and who care about the story. And in that regard, I've been very lucky and very blessed that, you know, The Lost CZ was made into a wonderful movie directed by James Gray, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is, you know, about one of the more monstrous crimes in American history that took place in the early 20th century when members of the Osage nation were being systematically murdered for their oil money. Um, that one is coming out in October and is directed by Martin Scorsese and it stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone and Robert De Niro. Um, and so I've been lucky to get it into the, these stories, into the hands of people who share my passion for these stories. They're going to interpret it and tell them uh, in such a way, but in a respectful way. Um, and, um, and then your hope is, and I, again, uh, I feel fortunate is that because, as I care about these stories, that in the more ways they are told, they radiate further out into our consciousness and mm -hmm. we become more aware of them. You may read the, for example, Killers of the Flower Moon. You may read the book and then see the film. You may see the film and then read the book, but then you'll also be drawn to other books. You'll read a book by an Osage writer like, um, uh, like Matthews or uh, Charles Redcorn wrote a pipe for February or a great Osage poet, um, at least passion, or maybe you'll read about other native American history. And so to me, that's how history and knowledge and discussion grows. I never believe in there is a definitive count. I believe knowledge grows from an accumulation of perspectives and stories um, told from multiple vantage points. So um, I'm not overly protective, but you just want to make sure you do get it into the hands of people care. And in the newest film that's coming out, Killers of the Flower Moon, I think most people will find it as a remarkable and very powerful film and document. How did the Osage react to that? to you telling the story? Because yeah. there's a lot of discussion about who tells the story these days. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my book could not have been told, you know, it is a piece of reporting and research that is drawn from uh, interviews with members of the Osage Nation. A lot of the Osage elders, many of whom have now tragically passed away because they were getting up there in years, who share with me their stories and help me document uh, this. And I think the reason they did is because while members of the Osage Nation were so um, obviously deeply familiar, uh, often traumatized or haunted by these crimes against members of their nation, um, most people outside the Osage Nation, uh, or certainly many, and I include myself, were completely ignorant of these crimes. We had in effect excised it from our consciousness, and which is not unlike the, the, the wager mutiny. You know, who gets to write the history and why some parts of our history and stories here brushed out? And this was one that was not taught.
Um, and so I think there was a sense among them, and some have told me this, that they thought it was time for this story to be, you know, to, to hopefully um, have more people aware of this story. Um, uh, and so, you know, for me, it was one of the more remarkable and personal and, and powerful experiences I've ever had uh, uh, telling telling a story. And I know with the film, so many members of the Osage Nation were so deeply involved in the shaping of the story and the production and the Osage languages in the film and the designs and the set. So I think, you know, these, you know, I think it is important that we, uh, first of all, there should be more access to uh, storytelling for uh, people who often always didn't have those access to means uh, to tell these stories. And I think whenever we tell stories, I think there is a moral, um, I always feel a certain moral responsibility not to be ignorant to tell these stories, but I do think there is a real burden to try at least as best we can to do them as sensitively and respectively and as judiciously as possible. I see a, a theme here about history and its accuracy and and this challenge that we have with what we are taught ourselves about American history in the United States yeah. and the challenges of so much that is either omitted or just absolutely wrong. I mean, there are so many people who believe that Christopher Columbus actually set foot in the continental United States. Yeah. He made it as far as the Caribbean. Yeah. And, and thought he was looking for the Indies. Yeah. And and so, uh, you know, one of the things I was, you know, that really um, struck me, you know, there was, uh, when I first told, got interested in Killers of the Flower Moon, I had visited the Osage Nation, I visited their museum. And there was this great panoramic photograph up on the wall. And it was taken in 1924. And it showed members of the Osage Nation along with white settlers. And it looked very innocent. And then I noticed that a portion of that photograph was missing. And um, the museum director, Catherine Redcorn, who I was meeting for the first time then, but since become a good friend, she, I asked her, you know, why is that part of the photograph missing? And she said, well, it had contained a figure so frightening we had removed it. And then she pointed to the missing panel. She said the devil was standing right there. And then she went down into, into the basement and she had an image of the, of the missing panel and it contained one of the killers uh, of the Osage. And I was just so struck. I mean, to me, you know, I was just so struck by that moment. I've told this story before, but it really struck me because, you know, the Osage had removed that photograph, not to forget what had happened, but because they couldn't forget. And yet so many of us uh, outside the Osage Nation, including myself, you know, we, we had completely, uh, you know, washed us out of our memories. We had excised it from our consciousness. So, um, and one of those things, that was one of the things that actually drew me to the story of the wager because it was a perfect illustration of how this happens. Amazing, just amazing. It has been such a treat. I could sit here and have you tell me stories of history and the world over and over again. I feel like I want to do with th this with you every week. Just tell me a story, David. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure. Anytime, anytime. <laughs> and your book is The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder. Um, also very exciting. And of course, you can always um, look for your writings in The New Yorker. This has been such a treat. Thank you, David. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, David, one thing. Um, are you on social media? Where can people follow you or find you? Yeah. Do you have a website? One of those yeah, things. I'm at davidgrant.com. 
And okay. um, I'm also on Twitter, although I use it less than I used to, but uh, at David Grand, uh, somewhere I'm on Facebook too. So yeah, you can, people can find me, davidgrand.com or at David Grand on Twitter. Excellent. Excellent. And you can find me at Energy News, this podcast, all our podcasts, wherever you get your podcast, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, just a variety of ways. This has been a special edition of True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.